Thank you for downloading this episode of Case Notes. Case Notes was recorded at the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh as part of the Edinburgh History of Medicine seminar series. You can get news of our latest events if you follow us on Twitter at RCP Heritage. We hope you enjoy the talk. In 1610, the medical writer Stephen Hobbs asked, for what is a man if he has not his health? This paper, in a small way, considers Hobbes' question. It asks what men, medical practitioners and patients, thought about their bodies when afflicted with bouts of ill health, broadly categorised as genitourinary conditions. Did men think that hernias affected their masculinity? Did they worry about venereal disease? What was said about conditions like phimosis or bladder stones? The paper, and the book from which it's drawn, also considers how medical practitioners tried to handle male patients of this kind. How did they frame their authority? And how did they try and get patients to come forward for treatments? How did patients and practitioners negotiate authority in the medical encounter during the 16th, 17th and 18th centuries? Before I really get into this, it's worth saying that it's not clear from the medical texts and personal literature how common some of these conditions were. Venereal disease arrived in Europe during the 15th century and was prevalent amongst the London poor before 1690. It was also widely discussed and perceived as a disorder afflicting the well-to-do. Other conditions were less ubiquitous, but not all. In the 18th century, hernias were often kept secret, so it's hard to understand how prevalent they were, but many people acknowledged they were indeed prevalent, particularly amongst labourers and soldiers. The picture from medical texts in the 17th century likewise suggests that they were common. Bladder stones and kidney stones also appear fairly frequently in the medical literature and seem to have afflicted many men during the period. But testicular cancers, other swellings and problems with the penis in particular and the urinary system outside of bladder stones appear to have been far less common. John Westover, who was a physician practicing in late 17th century Somerset, recorded very few male patients suffering from any of these conditions in his notes and diaries. And these conditions don't appear very often in private correspondence, although Joan Lane has warned us that people rarely describe their own health experiences in letters and were much more inclined to gossip about others. But despite this relative scarcity of personal accounts, published medical and surgical texts frequently and often um, wrote at length about these conditions, and many of them included case notes. This paper draws on the ways in which medical and surgical writers wrote about their patients, and this is supplemented wherever possible by personal narratives. While they may not always have accurately represented their patients, and particularly in attempts to cast their own practice in the best possible light and enhance their own reputations, it is plausible that the writings of these medical practitioners reflected their experiences of patient behaviour, and so they do start to allow us to piece together what these conditions meant for both male patients and practitioners and how they responded to them. So drawing on medical texts produced uh, by English and European authors published in England um, in the time period, the work presented here adds to two key strands of historical discussion. The first um, is about masculinity and the second about interactions between patients and practitioners. Historians have recently argued that we need to consider in more detail men's behaviours, actions and lived experiences of their bodies. Joanne Beggiato has emphasised that gender is inhabited and that we can learn a lot about the past by understanding corporeal experience. 
Manliness and masculinity were complex in the early modern period, and the physical body, notably its virility and strength, were just what some of the pillars upon which men built their identities. Men defined themselves as different from women based on strength and reason, which allowed them to govern and hold positions of power. Once married, patriarchal authority was gained as being the head of a household who governed those under his roof, and virility was then demonstrated through the fathering of children. Men were also expected, though, to demonstrate self-control and restraint, which in part, as we will see, kept their bodies healthy. Both patients and medical practitioners attempted to shape and demonstrate manly identities through their bodies and the regulation of their behaviour. And it was demonstrating these behaviours and features that allowed men to gain credit, reputation and honour. And as we'll see, all of this came into play for medical encounters. Interactions with medical practitioners in the early modern period have long been examined by historians. At this time, patients sought medical help and advice from a range of healers in what has come to be known as the medical marketplace. This included physicians, surgeons, apothecaries, empirics and irreg irregular practitioners. In addition, they sought help from clergymen and relatives and advice from family and friends. Robert Weston, though, has demonstrated that tensions often existed between elite male patients and the physicians and surgeons that they consulted, who were often a lower status um, than themselves. In England, the establishment of the Royal College of Physicians in 1518 granted only a few physicians elite elevated status. Despite enjoying civic status during the 16th century, Joan Lane has suggested that country gentlemen's relationships with provincial apothecaries was much like that with other tradesmen. And surgeons' reputations were shaped by the idea that they did manual labour upon bodies that were often stinking and putrid. And as Margaret Palling has suggested, all men working in the medical arena were compromised in gender terms because healing connoted women's work. Even royal physicians were, in effect, bodily servants involved in a menial task. Making all of this more complex, patients, as Deborah Harkness and others have shown, were well informed about health and medicine and were very opinionated about their own conditions and the methods of treatment that should be used. Those who did not appreciate the advice they received from one practitioner were liable to terminate their services and seek help elsewhere. Describing the Georgian era, and Digby has explained that physicians acknowledged the degree, that a degree of patient autonomy was inevitable during consultation and treatment. But Margaret Pelling has urged caution when interpreting these interactions. As she says, more often than not, they reveal the actions of a small minority of men who were more broadly um, interested in their health than in any explicit negotiation of authority. While this is the case, and I don't contradict Pelling, I think it's quite clear in the cases we'll see um, in this paper that when it came to genitourinary health, the men involved often did try to negotiate authority and that there was a certain amount of, of tussle going on between patients and practitioners. And I think this is one of the crucial elements in um, engagements between medical practitioners and male patients of this kind. So what did medical texts say about genitourinary conditions? Now, I'm not going to go through every condition and everything they said, so we'd be here a very long time. But um, I want to think about the ways in which they suggested that these conditions might affect the manly body or make it difficult for men to show their manliness. And this really comes down to four key things. Um, they described how ailments like this could cause impotence, infertility, cause the beard to fall out and cause incontinence. But my key argument really is that 
Um, while doing this, medical and surgical writers all downplayed the severity of these conditions and frequently suggested to readers that these ailments would be resolved without any lasting damage or consequence to men's bodies. This in part was to try and stop men from worrying about the possibilities that they'd be left less manly by a disease of this kind. As we will see, medical writers tried very hard to encourage men who were seemingly avoiding treatment until conditions became very severe um, to seek help in a timely manner. Once men engaged the services of a medic, practitioners were then also faced with patients who were difficult and unruly. And thus they used the language of their case notes and their medical treatises to try and shape these responses. So we'll see they try to encourage men to come forward quickly. They try to suggest that men will be left um, in much the same condition as before, and they use anonymity to try and gain more customers. The most prominent concern with these afflictions, um, particularly such as hernias, swellings and venereal disease, and phimosis, was that they would render men impotent. Male impotence and sexual failure were linked to ideas of disrupted household harmony and economy. Popular rhetoric claimed that unsatisfied wives would find themselves new lovers, cuckolding their husbands, and under mining their position as head of household. This could lead to derision by neighbours and the community, which was reflected in pamphlet and ballad culture at the time. Impotence and infertility throughout the early modern era were understood to be different conditions. Men could be impotent but still produce fertile seed, although this was clearly very difficult to establish, and could be able to engage in sexual activity but unable to father children. The two conditions though, as we might expect, were intimately connected and often tackled together. But I think it's important to note that often medical texts are interested in the infertility underlying um, both impotence and uh, issues of fertility, because this is what could be demonstrated uh, quite visibly through children. Impotence and the impotent man received a flurry of attention from the late 17th century through to the mid 18th century amid concerns about feminization and a loss of English vigor. And this would, was mirrored by concerns on the continent. Um, and impotent men were highlighted um, quite often as uh, showing the role of virility in constructions of masculine identity. And they were ridiculed as womanly, irrational, and highly emotional. And medical texts reflected these concerns. The surgeon Peter Lowe explained that diverse diseases, including tumours, inflammation, apostumes, winds, ulcers, cankers, and the such like, as well as the closing of the prepuce, phimosis, warts, glandules, pre and priapism, could all cause problems with a functioning penis. Medical writers hinted that this could then result in failure to achieve expected manly status. The German physician, Michael Etmüller claimed that there are two main qualifications requisite for the performing of the office of a husband, which was a key marker of patriarchy. One is the due erection and stiffness of the yard, and the other is the regular ejaculation of seed through the yard thus prepared. He related impotence to youngsters who had not yet achieved full maturity or rationality and who were unmarried and in particular who let their bashfulness and fear and hypochondriac despondency hinder their ability to maintain an erection. William Salmon related a palsy in the penis again to men's ability to marry. In his 17th century medical treatise, he explained that the condition did not hinder urination, but did stop the ejection of the seed and so was most troublesome and inconvenient to such as are married. To further emphasize this point, he included the case of an old Spaniard 
who he treated for a palsy because he would needs marry um, for the erection of his yard was paralytic. Entering into a marriage while knowing you were impotent was seen as dishonest and tantamount to fraud. Treatments were also often targeted by writers as eventual causes of impotence. Bartholomew Saviard's observations in surgery explained that a particular treatment for suppressed urine caused by bladder stones was likely to cause hemorrhaging and that it carried with it the danger of being impotent. But despite these concerns, surgical texts and medical texts offered narratives of hope that even in dire circumstances, men would not be rendered unable to fulfil their expected marital roles. Saviard, after describing the danger of the bladder stones and its treatment, proclaimed that he himself had not experienced any bad consequences when performing the operation. Daniel Turner's 1724 book on syphilis described a drunken debaucher afflicted with a tumour of the penis. He was eventually cured, but as Turner said, was left with a stump of an ill-favoured penis. But again, Turner concluded this observation by discussing the man's marital status. He said, about 12 months after this, however indifferently provided as you may infer from the preceding account, he made courtship to, and not heeding any impediment, married a woman, suitable indeed in years, but how in other respects is best known to themselves. His motive, he says, was to avoid further fornication, though he has since owned that his abilities are not answerable to his inclinations. And surely it was strange that they should, if on the woman's side there were no other views than those of a sorry maintenance, the disappointment may fit the easier. But this, as a domestic affair, we leave without further comment. Turner evidently disapproved of a relationship that couldn't clearly be consummated, but the story tries to present, present impotence in an ambivalent way. The man does still marry, and we can assume therefore still acts as the head of a household and achieves patriarchal status. So impotence is presented here as both a problem in theory, but also not a problem in reality and practice. Venereal disease in particular was routinely presented as a threat to men's virility, especially in the um, 18th century adverts though, it's a, a threat that can be cured and overcome. In adverts like this one, you can see um, the promises of curing venereal disease and restoring men's virility. And again, in medical texts, authors acknowledged that the disease would cause impotence, but that this could be cured and rectified. James Martin, in his treatise on venereal disease, claimed to have treated a young man who had a mortification of his penis following treatment for venereal disease by what he called a pretended surgeon. Martin stopped the mortification um, with the application of proper remedies, um, by which he meant that he removed the whole of the prepuce and the foreskin. While quite a dramatic intervention, this removal saved the patient's penis, which otherwise he was in great danger of losing. Martin therefore forcefully implied that the other surgeon's practices had put the man's um, virility at risk and would have been a poor outcome, but that his own practice saved this um, and emphasised that impotence wasn't a foregone conclusion. Medical and surgical writers were similarly reticent about suggesting that these conditions resulted in sterility. Most medical discussions about the potential disruption to men's fertility focused on um, the ability to produce potent seed and thus focused on the testicles where seed was produced. Again, medical writers connected the body and the testicles to ideas of manliness in their kind of introductory discussions of, the, of men's bodies. 
is Bran van Diemerbroek claimed that they are called the testes or the stones because they are a testimony to virility or manhood. And hence it was that the Romans of old admitted only men to give testimony in all causes and trials, rejecting those deprived of their testes as not men. Hernias and bladder stones and the surgery necessary to correct both conditions were seen as particularly threatening to um, men's ability to produce seed. Ambrose Pare claimed that many men become barren after they've been cut for the stone and that those who have their testicles cut off or compressed or contused by violence cannot beget children. He further explained that, but for the wounds of the testicles and the genital parts, because they're necessary instruments for the preserving of the species by generation or the succession of individuals and to keep all things quiet at home, therefore a surgeon ought to be very diligent and careful for their preservation. So despite acknowledging the potential dangers of these conditions, Paré here again demonstrates that medical and surgical writers attempted to ameliorate these concerns and emphasise to potential patients that they were concerned um, and careful in the preservation of men's bodies. Nonetheless, conditions could require um, orchiectomy and potentially disrupt fertility. Richard Wilkes, a physician in Staffordshire, recorded in his journal that he attended when two surgeons removed a rotten and pulpy testicle weighing four pounds and a quarter from a 30-year-old butcher. The unfortunate man had been carrying a basket of meat on horseback when he had fallen and caught his testicle on the edge of the basket. In February 1736, Wilkes likewise recorded um, that he had assisted a surgeon in removing a bruised testicle weighing 29 ounces from a 26-year-old man. Medical writers noted that patients were anxious about this course of treatment. Daniel Turner described how he um, was called out to see a man who was repeatedly treated for a watery swelling in his testicles. He told him that castration would be the only option um, that would completely remove the disorder and claimed that the patient though demurred against it by reason that the testes must be thereby destroyed. Turner felt this was particularly short-sighted on this patient's case. Um, as he said, the, the testicle was, quote, always swimming in a puddle of water, so he thought it probably wasn't functioning anyway. Surgical writers were emphatic that saving fertility relied upon the skills of what they class good surgeons, and they decried the poor practices of others who put men's um, manly status at risk. Peter Lowe, um, for example, claimed, in this disease, there are great abuses committed by a number of unskillful, ignorant people, void of all good conscience and fear of God, who for every simple kind of, kind of rupture, make incision and cuts away the productions of the periton and stone. If the descent be on both sides, they cut off both the stones, which renders a man sterile and causes the hair of the beard to fall. Surgeons thus played on men's fears that conditions could cause infertility to advocate their own professional levels of skill. They did so to encourage men who felt concerned or ashamed about their condition to seek medical help from appropriate healers in a timely manner. In many cases, they suggested that good surgeons would avoid unnecessary surgery and would preserve at least one testicle to allow the patient to continue their life as before. And the clearest um, nature of uh, the clearest statements of this nature that we see are those attesting to patients fathering children after being treated for the condition, um, which is, is included, I think, purely to show that they can save men's fertility and to show that manliness isn't impeded. Isbrand van Diemerbroek, for example, 
claimed that uh, Captain Cooper becoming Burston by reason of a violent fall from his horse and not being um, to be cured but by the taking away of the stone had afterwards by his wife several children of both sexes. The same accident happened to Bernard Zed, who when a young man had one stone taken from him by reason of being burst in, who therefore was wont to brag that he could get more children with one stone than others could get with two, for he was very much addicted to venery and had a great number of children by five wives and several illegitimates. Robert Houston's treatise the History of Ruptures related the work done by two surgeons in Blois in 1559. In this case, a patient, a 39-year-old man, was operated on for an inguinal hernia that developed when he was playing football. And during the operation, he had the bulk of two hen's eggs removed from his intestines. Although it took more than five months for the man to recover, the case narrative concluded that he lived sound and free from all that ail full nine years at Bois without any truss and often strained in the playing of handball, suggesting he's perfectly capable of a kind of manly sports and exercise. He, after that, married twice, had children in both and not the least vestige of mark of his former ail except a slowness of digestion. Similarly, Daniel Turner's Art of Surgery included a detailed case description of a man with a fleshy testicular tumour. Turner, working with a Mr. Jacob Babington, eventually removed the patient's testicle because it was interfering with his ability to work. Again, despite a difficult recovery in which the patient suffered of fever, Turner concluded with a happy note that the man was soon after into his loom, prosecuting his business without let or inconvenience, and after performing more with one than he'd done with both his witnesses, his wife bearing him a child within a year of the operation. And surgeons, although we haven't got time to go over it here, used similar language in cases of phimosis as well to emphasise that the patient had retained both the ability to engage in sexual activity and to father children. So we can see here again, practitioners both underlying the potential for genitourinary conditions to rob the body of a key marker of manliness, but also their very clear message that if patients seek timely help and appropriate help from practitioners such as themselves, their manhood will not be adversely affected. Very much connected to these concerns about impotence and infertility, medical writers acknowledged that men who suffered from these problems might lose their facial hair, which was considered again a key marker of the manly body. Beardlessness manifested the subordinate position of young men, and Victoria Sperry has eloquently demonstrated that because beard hair was thought to be an excrement produced by the testicles as they produce sperm, sparse facial hair um, demonstrated an incomplete ripening of young men's bodies during puberty. Medical texts consistently linked thin and absent facial hair with a lack of reproductive vigour and sexual ability. It was therefore a visible marker of impotence and infertility and of a body that was drifting precariously close to feminine qualities. John Tanner, for example, in The Hidden Treasures of the Art of Physic, suggested that barren men displayed an effeminate spirit and no beard. Again, venereal disease and hernias were thought to be the key threats in this area. Um, and in particular, the language used in these descriptions related these bodies to that of a eunuch. For the venereal disease, it was believed that the steam of the pox rose up through the body and caused the facial hair to fall out. And this was particularly problematic um, because, as Lisa Smith has shown previously, men who contracted venereal disease and brought it into their homes were already considered to have failed to demonstrate self-control and restraint in their sexual practices. 
the loss of the beard was therefore a visible sign that a man's physical masculinity and his rationality and self-control were all diminished. The 1660 medical text, um, two treatises, the first of venereal pox and the second of gout, based on the works of Daniel Sennett, but translated by Nicholas Culpepper, claimed that descriptions of venereal disease um, caused the shedding of the hair, which made men appear almost ridiculous, some appearing without a beard, some without hair or on their eyebrows, and others with bald pates. Hernias disrupted the production of sperm and thus affected the ability to grow a beard as well. Peter Lowe warned that hernias sometimes being healed in the one side, it falleth out on the other side, for the curation whereof and um, do the like, by which he means remove the testicle. Yet it's very incommodious, for after the party is disabled to engender, and the hair of the beard becomes thin and falleth. For which cause, and diverse others, I'm of the opinion with the learns, not to attempt this operation, but rather to use a truss. And he wasn't alone. John Martin likewise declared that hernias um, made men lose their beards. He said, how sheepish and womanish doth a castrated man look, deprived of his manly parts. How dead and withered, cold in love affairs, beardless and effeminate is he. Women shun his company, laugh at him, ridicule and deride him as not fit, and indeed he is not, for their conversation and company. And Ambrose Pare similarly warned that eunuchs degenerate into a womanish nature, for they remain without beards, their voice is weak, their courage fails them and they turn cowards, and seeing that they're unfit for all human actions, their life cannot be but miserable. Wherefore, I will never subscribe to the cutting out of the stones unless a sarsicele or gangrene invade them. He thus emphasised that removing the testicles should only be considered as a last resort in the most severe cases. And these comments, like those about fertility and impotence, were used to try and guide patients to seek medical care from appropriate and good surgeons, rather than those who might be reckless or poorly trained and put their manly status at risk. Surgeons were therefore not above playing on men's fears in order to gain customers and their own um, income. The final area in which genitourinary problems were thought to affect men was by leaving them incontinent. Patricia Simons has explained that the way men controlled and expelled urine from the body was important to constructions of masculinity. Urination offered humorous, public and assertive ways to present manliness to others. Standing upright during urination reflected male dominance and social position over women who had to squat down low to the floor in order to pass water. In the humoral medical model, which dominated early modern thought, women were presented as cold and leaky vessels in contrast to warmer, drier men. Incontinence thus made men's bodies appear more feminine and demonstrated an inability to exert control over their physical self. As they'd done in other areas though, medical writers presented these concerns to readers, but downplayed the potential for lasting consequences to hinder patients' lives and to change the outward appearance of their masculine body. They highlighted in particular the use of assistive technologies like pipes to overcome these problems. Ambrose Pare included a chapter in his surgical treatise describing methods to relieve men who, quote, have their urine flow from them against their wills and such as want their yards. In this, he directly compared men who could not urinate standing up to women and thereby emasculated them. He said, those that have their yards cut off too close to their bellies are greatly troubled in the making of urine, so that they're constrained to sit down like women for their ease. 
To compensate for such problems, Paré explained that he had devised a pipe or conduit, having a hole through it as big as one's finger, which may be made of wood. In cases of other urinary conditions that resulted in, in incontinence, Paré was similarly clear that these difficulties could be overcome, allowing men to live their lives unimpeded. For example, when discussing strangury, the painful shedding of urine by drops, he explained that it meant that men leaped urine against their will, which was particularly problematic for those who needed to travel. In order to help um, assuage this, he created a device that would contain and catch strips and allow men to carry on um, travelling as they needed to. Lithotomy, the surgery um, to treat bladder and kidney stones, was also considered to be very dangerous to the body's ability to retain urine. Felix Platter's medical text recorded that sometimes the urine flows another way out, out of the wound in the cutting for the stone, where it flows from the perineum, till it be healed. The same may be about the loins or the lower parts of the belly from a wound there, as we knew one who made no, no urine but at his groin for many years. Francois Tollet believed that men who were left with leaking fistulas were to be pitied um, and that those who became incontinent were to be, quote, ranked amongst the miserable. However, Felix Platter again implied that lasting leakage would not be problematic. He recited the story of a fisherman whose bladder from a rupture in the groin fell into the cods and lay stretched out and voided no urine, but by a catheter while an ignorant surgeon let it out by the cutting thereof, which gave ease to the patient with great danger, from which being freed, he pisses yet through a fistula that remains by drawing forth a tent wherewith it stopped. The suggestion that this man simply plugged up his fistula with a cloth and removed it in order to urinate was presented as unproblematic and an acceptable outcome, which perhaps it was if the other options were more severe or death. Um, but Richard Wiseman was similar um, in suggesting that the inability to hold urine would not necessarily be a problem. He recorded the case of a 50-year-old man who suffered a suppression of urine um, caused by gonorrhea and a gangrene of the right testicle. Wiseman explained that the urine passed through the gangrene-afflicted area and noted that at the end of treatment, his urine passed somewhat by the natural way and at last it passed better, and that the man had since been married to a young woman. Again, he suggested that leaking urine had not disrupted the man's ability to create a household or potentially sexually satisfy his wife. But apparently, incontinence was not viewed the same by all patients. Wiseman noted in another case where the patient was left in a similar condition that he often complained of his unhappy condition. We can see in these somewhat complicated descriptions that medical writers were walking a fine line between informing their patients of the damage that genitourinary conditions could do to the body and suggesting that manliness and life would not be impeded as a result of seeking help. They were trying, I think, in these texts to encourage men to seek help from good practitioners who would in turn return their bodies to a state of manly health. And of course, in every case, they are the good practitioner who should be um, appealed to. This in part, I think, was driven by their perception of men's responses to these conditions. Medical and surgical writers found men unwilling to seek out appropriate help in a timely fashion. And in particular, they suggested that men with genitourinary conditions hid their conditions for quite a long time and continued with their life and work until um, the disorders became severe and unmanageable. 
Deborah Harkness has suggested that English medical culture during the period fostered an environment in which subjective bodily experience of illness and treatment um, was important and which both men and women were encouraged to engage in medical therapies only after arming themselves with knowledge about the body and the humoral um, model. And we should also remember that experiences of pain and symptoms were individual and the ability to live with a condition varied from person to person. In this sense, then, it's perhaps not um, unusual to see patients holding off on seeking treatment. But medical and surgical writers frame their descriptions not in these senses, but as a refusal to seek help um, based on ignorance and willful neglect. For example, the 16th century surgeon Philip Barrow claimed that the young man flourishing, as it were, in the April of his age, cockereth in himself a foolish imagination of his own lustiness and repute it as a great discredit to seem to fear the approach of any disease. This quote overlooks that men of all ages avoided seeking help from a physician or surgeon, um, but it does suggest that it was quite a common um, annoyance on the part of writers. Again, medical writers are overlooking that men had many reasons for avoiding treatment. Some were concerned about their conditions, some were concerned about the unpleasant nature of the treatments, others were concerned um, about leaving their daily activities and work, and for some that was a complete impossibility. They needed to work to avoid destitution. But when we see this written up in medical cases and medical case notes, what we see is um, medical writers emphasizing patients' inability to understand their conditions or the harm that they're doing. And again, this is an attempt to assert their own authority and encourage men to ask for their advice and their help appropriately. Nicholas Gainsford, working on the Sussex-Kent border, for example, described um, Samuel Kurd, who damaged his testicles climbing over a bar. He said of him that he, thinking to be not very much, neglected himself some time and the humours that fell down to that place made him mightily out of order in his body. Similarly, the English translation of La Vognons, a complete body of surgical operations published in 1699, described a patient whose careless attitude allowed his hernia to increase and become more serious. He said, a certain gentleman named Daniel de Chaloux, who for several years had been afflicted with an enterocele, chanced to use some violent exercise, upon which the gut fell into the scrotum. Whence came a great pain in his belly, continual vomiting, great restlessness, and a retention of the urine and excrements. Having neglected to take any care for remedying this, all the symptoms increased by reason of the violence of pain in the belly, and after two or three days he fell into a coma. Now, whether these men were negligent because they believed their conditions weren't serious or because work and business prevented them from giving their bodies due consideration, these observations reveal that men avoided medical care and sometimes for substantial periods of time. Although we should note that some of these men might have been seeking help from family members um, or local healers um, and that the medical writers just disapproved of that and didn't want to write it down. The narrative of neglect often appears in descriptions of venereal patients and um, where men maintained often in the face of contrary evidence that their partner could not have possibly infected them. John Martin knew that such men continued in this belief in the face of physical evidence of their disease. He said, I knew a young man that had a large eating ulcer on his scrotum with, another with other attending symptoms before he would so much as acknowledge that anything ailed him. And these examples were again included to try and train men to respond in appropriate ways. 
And I think this is reinforced if we look at some cases that are included where men respond to practitioners in the way they want. So if we look at an example from John Moyle, who's a naval surgeon, he described a patient with a syphilitic inflammation of penis and testicles. But unlike many of the observations, he stated quite simply that the man having got a mischance came to me. Now, as you can see on the slide, the man is already quite ulcerated and swollen, so maybe he had waited some time. But Moyle doesn't present it in that way. Instead, he presents the man as coming forward briskly, receiving remedies, including a bag truss and a purge and a sweat, and then concludes the observation with the note that by due repetition of these means, the patient was cured in a little time. So he behaves in the right way and he's rewarded with a quick and, um, and uh, speedy recovery. So in addition to reassuring men that good practitioners could cure them and render their bodies suitable for work and social and domestic life, and as well as emphasising the problems of ignoring and neglecting ailments, medical and surgical writers also employed anonymity to try and demonstrate to male patients that they could seek help in, uh, confidentially. Again, this was part of a strategy to encourage them to purchase medical services as soon as required. This also suggests to us that uh, the attempts to kind of ameliorate patients' concerns about these conditions um, were not always successful and that they were considered embarrassing, shameful and potentially unmanly. This has already been demonstrated for venereal disease by Kevin Siena, um, but it applies to the broad range of conditions. John Martin exclaimed in the early 18th century that most men blushed to own the venereal disease because it carried with it disgrace and seems to reproach them for frailty and irregularities. And talking of other conditions, the famous Edinburgh physician and anatomist Alexander Munro stated, the unwillingness patients have to let it be known that they laboured under diseases of the parts I've treated of made me relate the histories of particular patients without names, dates or witnesses so that the persons cannot be known except by those already in the secret. Now, Samantha Sandasi has shown that 17th century surgical texts rarely included patient names. Um, and so the concealment of patient details is not specific to men with genitourinary conditions. But I think using that approach allowed medical practitioners to um, facilitate the avoidance of shame and embarrassment and potential derision. Hernias in particular, as we've already mentioned, were a source of embarrassment and might be hidden. Daniel Turner noted that one middle-aged man waited until half an hour before his death before revealing that he was suffering from a hernia. Turner exclaimed that he was surprised that anyone in such a condition could scarce have been so bashful nor yet so ignorant of his case to have kept his healers in the dark. So writers therefore employed anonymity to protect clients' reputations. In James Cook's The Marrow of Surgery Much Enlarged, the chapter describing watery hernias in the scrotum included the case of one now alive, therefore not to be named. And Richard Wiseman, um, who was a surgeon in the Civil War, frequently used descriptions rather than patients' names to um, introduce his case notes. He, uh, for example, included a gentleman of 30 years of age having from his youth been vexed with a fistulous ulcer in his right testicle. And when describing um, patients with venereal disease, he used this trope repeatedly, calling them a young man, a young fellow, a man of 26 years of age, a man of about 36 years of age. Now, Wiseman used this formulation for many of his patients, but it allowed him to discuss a full range of disorders without the fear that he would embarrass his clients. 
The naval surgeon John Moyle used the same formulations in his observations, explaining that he treated a man of 38 years of age for an acute inflammation in the groin, and a man aged 26 years who had a syphilitic bubo, an ulceration. While this might give the impression that all men's names were concealed, this is not the case. Cook did include a Mr Bradley, aged 87, whose scrotum was livid um, and was afflicted with a tumour. And John Hall's treatise likewise named several patients troubled with bloody urine, including an M. Flood, uh, Mr Thomas Underhill. He also noted that William Clavell suffered from a virulent gonorrhea and explained that Squire Rainsford was miserably afflicted by several symptoms, including a tumour of his stones. So not all men were afforded um, this anonymity. Um, so I think it's, it's worth considering that they're using this as a, a much more purposeful um, strategy to encourage patients to come forward. Although it should be noticed that some of their descriptions would not have hidden the man at all and anyone who knew him would probably have been able to identify him. The only one, the only set of conditions where anonymity doesn't really appear is men with bladder stones. They rarely had their names concealed um, and it seems to be something that was much more freely and openly talked about. And indeed many men save their bladder stones and go around showing them to various physicians and interested parties. But despite the, this, I think it's worth bearing in mind that anonymity suggests to us that men did respond with, with shame and embarrassment and would have potentially sought out uh, physicians and healers who would have protected their reputation and helped them maintain um, that sense that they, they had a manly body. This is also the case in manuscript case notes where patients were sometimes named but were sometimes hidden. Richard Wilkes treated Mr Hodgkin in 1739, recording that he had drunk hard for many years, was now five foot seven inches, thick over the navel and had a dropsical humour that had fallen down upon his penis and scrotum, the former being thick as a man's wrist, crooked and transparent, and the latter near as big as a man's head. However, in other manuscript collections, names were obscured again. And this is potentially because manuscript documents were semi-public. They were used to record um, case notes, but payment details and um, other kind of aspects of life, and so were open to more um, readers than just the, the practitioner. If we return to Nicholas Gainsford, uh, he was happy to name Samuel Kurd and another man, Samuel Rogers, as having a swollen scrotum, but he didn't feel it was appropriate to name a certain man having his testicles inflamed. Thus, medical writers were aware of the potential for embarrassment and adapted their writing techniques to try and show their own um, uh, confidentiality in their services. They tried to show patients that they could protect both their sexual and reproductive function and their reputation. So once men had finally come forward and sought out medical care, usually once a condition had become excessively painful or in the case of swellings, the swelling gets so big that the man can't function anymore, medical writers then suggest they faced a whole new set of frustrations. They said that their patients didn't always respond to the healer or their treatments in the subservient and um, obedient way they would expect. Patients are like children, still desiring such things which are offensive and hurtful, the surgical treatise of Felix Wirtz complained in 1658. And this was definitely not a unique sentiment. Medical and surgical texts are littered with complaints about patient behaviour. They complain that men both actively and passively impeded medical regimes. They overindulged in food, drink and lascivious behaviour, which disrupted healing and made men neglect their remedies. 
Now we must uh, take all of these descriptions with a pinch of salt because practitioners blamed uh, patients when outcomes were poor. So pointing out a patient's unruly behaviour allowed medical practitioners to maintain the sense that they were good and effective and that any poor outcomes were the result of factors beyond their own practice. So moderate alcohol intake um, in the early modern period was acknowledged to bring gladness and cheerfulness, but excessive alcohol consumption revealed a lack of restraint and was considered unmanly. In addition, it prevented recovery and interfered with treatments. Richard Wiseman dealt with a venereal patient who was much given to drink. And when he asked him why he drank his treatment so hastily, the patient explained that it was to make way for better liquor. In a similar case recorded in the notebook of the Lockyer family, a 30-year-old venereal disease patient was described as being, all the while during his cure, very disorderly drinking and keeping company. John Middleton's 1727 treatise on lithotomy likewise explained that a 45-year-old patient who'd been cut for the stone only managed to restrain his libations for 15 days. He began now to think himself out of danger and being weary of his regimen, he prevailed with his nurse to let him drink at his liberty. And having no restraint, he was weak enough to suffer himself to be overtaken with liquor, the effect of which was the inflaming of his wound. Although the patient then managed to exert enough self-control to gain all the signs of perfect health, his indulging too freely with spiritus liquors after his, after his cure concluded caused kidney inflammation and proved fatal in eight months. Alongside drinking, men failed to control their diets. Jane Sharp wrote angrily um, in the midwife's book while discussing male and female fertility that she could never endure the prosperous, preposterous way that most persons observe to the destruction of their friends, that when they're sick, they will never let them alone, but provoke them to eat. Whereas fasting is the better doctor, so it be not out of measure. Richard Wiseman moaned that one of his patients, supposing himself secure from a gonorrhea, took his liberty abroad in eating and drinking until he had a great inflammation on his prepuce. In another observation, Wiseman complained about a 26-year-old man who completed the majority of his treatment but refused to undergo a course of bathing. When the patient inevitably returned for further treatment, Wiseman recorded that his condition was worse, not just because he hadn't done the bathing, but because he had taken too great a liberty of eating and drinking during his cure. The eminent 16th century um, surgeon at St. Bartholomew's in London, William Close, explained that patients also needed to be quiet, moderate in their diet, but more importantly, altogether abstain from the use of carnal copulation. Felix Wurtz's treatise likewise cautioned surgeons that they must observe and regulate more than their patients' diets. Let wounded parties not practice venereous lusts whereby the worst accidents are caused, he said. Men, however, continued to engage in sexual activities when they were unwell. Edmund Harold recorded in his diary on the 29th of June, 1712, that he was very dull or weak, but that he still managed to have copulation, etc., with his wife. He did not record what caused his ill health, but his diary um, shows us that he did suffer with kidney stones, so that may well have been the source of his problems. Likewise, Matthew Perman recorded a case in his medical treatise from 1694 of a 28-year-old draper who was treated for a watery swelling of his penis. After the use of a poultice and incisions that had released around a pint of water, the swelling started to go down. As his condition improved, though, Perman noted that the draper made use of his young wife as formerly, whereupon the swelling returned. 
This patient was rather unfortunate um, in that repeated treatments, perhaps because of his lax attitude, resulted in excessive pain, insomnia and, and eventual death. Um, the poor man also believed it was his wife bewitching him, um, but that's a whole other side to the story. Hannah Newton has recently suggested to us that what might appear here to be obstinate and unruly behaviour was perhaps connected to men's desires to be cured. She says that men resumed sexual activity and feasting to celebrate their return to, Ill, uh, to full health. So these men may simply have been trying to assert their own belief in their recovered health, but they did so in defiance of their physicians and surgeons um, and against the insistence that they weren't yet healed. And so what we can see here is the kind of constant negotiation for authority over the body with everyone believing that they knew what was going on and what was best for the patient. Practitioners urged remedies, which also made the money, and patients urged um, physicians to release them and let them go back to their normal lives. Patients particularly defied their practitioners when they felt like treatments were taking too long or when they started to see positive results, as we've already seen. The English version of Henri Francois Ledrand's surgical treatise included the story of a 40 year old surgeon who should have known better. When suffering from a hernia, the surgeon reduced it and wore a double padded bandage, but thinking he was cured in a week's time threw his bandage aside because it was troublesome. Likewise, Wiseman described one initially quite obedient patient who on seeing his symptoms were clearing up and feeling secure that Wiseman's treatments would work, became careless in his taking of the prescribed physic and suffered a relapse. So men's responses to genitourinary conditions and treatments, at least as far as practitioners observed, were coloured by lax attitudes, an inability to follow instructions and a desire to reassert authority over their own lives and bodies. Which brings me to some brief conclusions. Men suffering from genitourinary conditions were, from the picture we've seen here, troubled by the potential for these conditions to reflect badly on the manliness of their bodies. They responded in some cases by hiding their conditions and neglecting themselves. And moreover, when they did finally seek treatment, they were liable to be problematic and obstinate patients who tussled with their medical practitioners for authority and showed a desire to be cured and return to their normal life. Medical and surgical writers, therefore, used their texts not only to educate other medics about these conditions, but to try and shape the behaviours um, and expectations of potential patients. <coughs> they emphasised that many men were able to continue their lives free from impotence, infertility and incontinence if they sought care in a timely manner from good practitioners. They emphasised that timing was key, that patients didn't necessarily know what was best for their own bodies, and if they ignored conditions, they might get worse um, and develop other conditions and other problems. They also emphasised to patients that it was crucial to follow their prescriptions, to do as they were told as patients, to, in order to um, gain a proper cure and to restore their manly status. So the snippets that we see here in printed manuscript texts uh, imprinted and manuscript texts help us to start building a picture of how male patients and male practitioners responded to these conditions in the early modern periods and how they interacted with one another during both treatment and recovery. Thank you for listening to our History of Medicine lecture series, Case Notes. This podcast has been brought to you by the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh. We're a charity and if you enjoyed today's show, 
head over to rcpe.ac.uk heritage for more information and how to donate. Thank you.